Hey, this is Justin Charity from Damage Control. I have some exciting news for all of you Ringer fans out there. The Ringer has new merchandise with a shiny new storefront that you can check out right now. Go to theringer.com slash shop to pre-order your merch now. You can also find the link to the Ringer web store in the podcast description. While you're at theringer.com, go ahead and check out a great piece by our friends Allison Herman and Victor Luckison about the hilarious life and agonizing death of online comedy, sites like The Onion, Funnier or Die, and why we aren't going to them anymore. Check it out. Season three of Billions premiered on Sunday. Bill Simmons and Mallory Rubin are taking over the Recapables podcast each week to discuss the show. You can also find recaps of Donald Glover's show Atlanta on that feed, so be sure to subscribe. All right, and now on to damage control. I'm Justin Charity. And I'm Cameron Collins. Welcome to Damage Control on the Channel 33 Network, a podcast where we unpack what upsets, excites, and divides us in popular culture. Ready Player One. We're talking about Steven Spielberg's latest blockbuster based on a controversial novel by Ernest Cline. Ready Player One, both the book and the new movie, have provoked a lot of anxious discussions of gamer identity and nostalgia porn. We're going to take a deep breath, and we're going to talk it through. But first, we're talking about Stormy Daniels, Donald Trump's latest media antagonist. She appeared in 60 Minutes last Sunday to tell Anderson Cooper all about her 2006 affair with Trump and the president's subsequent attempts to intimidate her and buy her silence. We're going to talk through that, too. You feel like if you had wanted to go public, you could have gotten paid a lot of money to go public in an interview? Without a doubt. I know for a fact. I believe, without a shadow of a doubt, in my heart... And some people argue that I don't have one of those, but whatever, that I was doing the right thing. I turned down a large payday multiple times because one, I didn't want to kiss and tell and be labeled all the things that I'm being labeled now. I didn't want to take away from the legitimate and legal, I'd like to point out, career that I've worked very hard to establish. And most importantly, I did not want my family and my child exposed to all the things that she's being exposed to right now. Because everything that I was afraid of coming out has come out anyway. And guess what? I don't have a million (laughs) dollars. You didn't even buy me breakfast. So you just heard Stormy Daniels speaking with Anderson Cooper. Uh, On Sunday, 60 Minutes ran this interview with Daniels, who recounted her 2006 affair with Donald Trump. Now, this isn't the first time Daniels has spoken at length about the affair. Uh, The 60 Minutes interview actually covers a lot of details that were revealed several months ago when In Touch magazine published a previously unreleased 2011 interview with Daniels. Uh, But Cooper pressed Daniels and her attorney, Michael Avenatti, to describe Trump's attempts to suppress news of Trump's affair with Daniels since October 2016, so a month before the presidential election. So Daniel says that the president and his lawyer, Michael Cohen, have threatened to harm her and her family if she continues to speak publicly about the affair with Trump. Uh, And so the scandal here isn't just that Daniels and Trump had sex and that Trump had an affair. It's also that this has become a story about abuses of power. It's become a story about Trump's volatile relationship with women and how he dehumanizes women and bullies women and intimidates women. In all of this, Stormy Daniels has become, among Trump's critics, I would say, 
this sort of champion figure. She's kind of a successor to James Comey in a lot of ways, at least as far as media narratives go. Still, because Stormy Daniels is a porn star, uh, the intrigue surrounding her has taken on a sort of charged, polarized tone as Trump's critics disagree over whether a sex scandal is high on the list of priorities when it comes to scrutinizing Trump and his behavior, especially if you compare the Stormy Daniels affair to something like the Russia investigation. So, Cam, let's start with the 60 Minutes interview. Uh, It's seen as this watershed moment for the public profile of Stormy Daniels. Stormy Daniels is just one of many women to come out and, and have these sort of grotesque stories about Donald Trump. Why, why has she made this sort of media traction, I think, where others haven't? That's, I wanna, that's what I want to walk through. I, are you suggesting that some of this might have to do with American puritanism? <laughs> <laughs> so we go. I mean, you know, this one, this is, a, this is hard. This is another, for me, example of a moment where you got to wonder, like, am I in the matrix or not? Like, is, is this something that matters a lot to the media narrative that matters to people who follow a lot of media people on Twitter, et cetera, but that doesn't seem to be having traction with the public broadly? And should we be making a difference, a distinction between how the media is talking about this and how the public is sort of interpreting it or not, as in the case of many Trump scandals? This seems to be interesting for people because of the sex part. That is clearly not what's damning here. Right. And I think I think there's an extent to it. I'm not saying that this conversation has not been serious. I'm saying that some of the journalists that you see on Twitter, like it's as if they're trying to meet a quota of how many times they can say porn star in a day or tweet the, the phrase porn star. It's like not even it's like we know who Stormy Daniels is at this point. You don't have to say a porn star in your tweet. But but. But that's the part that we seem to be fixated on in some ways. That is a part that people obviously want to use to sort of discredit her story. And that's sort of why I'm like, I, uh, uh, you, you, you know, like, I, like, well, I don't think it's just people who want to discredit Stormy Daniels who are hung up on it. No, that's totally. The, that's totally, the interesting totally, thing about totally. it, right? It's even, I would go so far as to say even critics of people who are the people who are overusing the characterization of porn star? In a way, those people are in a galaxy brain sort of way hung up on the idea of like how we talk about porn stars. Yes. Right. Yes. And it, it's like it basically no faction in all of this is really allowing Stormy Daniels to sort of primarily exist as a person who is trying to provide just an honest account of an unethical encounter she had with Donald Trump. Yes. Right. Like unethical on Trump's part. And in a lot of ways, that's sort of on the one hand, it's sort of I, I do think it contributes to the traction that the story has gotten. Right. Because she's right. Stormy Daniels is this she's a larger than life figure in a way that a lot of other Trump critics and Trump accusers, frankly, are not. And that is her that's her advantage in media. Like the fact that she has I mean, the real success of Stormy Daniels is that despite the fact that a lot of people have a lot alleged a lot of misconduct against Donald Trump, she has this very canny media sense about her. She yes. knows how to do an interview. She, know, she knows how to, she, she knows his world. You know what I mean? This is a, a Hall of Fame porn star. Right. Like, I had to, I mean, you know, I'm not straight, so I had to, 
before all of this, I actually, she's not, she's not a porn star who for me has crossed over into sort of a queer mainstream. Right. So I had to look her up and she's a big deal. She would of course be extremely charismatic and I hats off to her for knowing how to sort of witness. But I think part of the reason that she, I mean, she just, she's accusing Trump of something a little bit, I mean, a lot a bit different than what his other accusers are accusing him of. His accusers are alleging a sort of level of sexual misconduct that she is not. Um, That's important to know. that's, that's That's an important, that's an important part of not only the way that she's able to sort of perform in the media, but also I think of, how the media gets to be have a little bit more fun treating this salaciously, yeah. Um, because she is not, you know, she's not alleging like something like sexual assault. Um, this is not like, you know, this is not the grabber by the pussy tape. She's she's recounting how she and Trump had sex, and she thought, if anything, it was just sort of hilarious, and that all of the right the dark stuff here is the legal intimidation instead of innuendo of physical intimidation that that right. followed from that. That's what the right. real story is. In the, in the Stormy Daniels case. You know, look, we write for the internet. We understand how headlines work. We understand that if you call us a porn star story, <laughs> you're more likely to get people to click. For a number of reasons. Obviously, this is a president. America is a country that loves sex, political sex scandals. Um, I mean, we just, we will never get past that as a nation, I don't think. The problem for me is how we've all sort of deluded ourselves into this rhythm of thinking that something is a smoking gun every single time, the thing that's going to take Trump down. And I think that the porn star part of this is another, you know, adds weight to that for people. Like not only this is not just like stepping out on your wife. This is not just, you know, having an affair. This is not just paying someone off. This is with a porn star. Right. You know, it's it's very much like it satisfies all the things that we don't really know about JFK and Marilyn Monroe, right? Like, it, like it, it, it's that kind of it's that kind of story for people. And I just this is a very Loch Ness monster for me. It's like the head will emerge from the water, we'll take our photo, and then we'll never see it for another hundred years. And so we have this little bit of proof, and it goes nowhere. That to me is the rhythm of the smoking gun when it comes to this presidency, and that's why I sort of can't. I can't let myself be involved in sort of the emotional, like psychological fun. An investment. Yeah. yeah, because it's just like, you know, look, how many New York Times alerts am I going to get a day about this Russia investigation? And still this dude is our president. So it's like, you know, for me, it's just like, this is not exciting to me. Yeah. And to me, it, it hurts that her nearest analog, if we're talking about obstruction of Trump's presidency. Right. The nearest analog really is James Comey, right? right. James Comey, you know, from a very from a different background obviously, but like James Comey was this figure who emerged and who no, not only had receipts about Donald Trump, but also emerged with this supreme media canny that yeah, I remember thinking and I remember a lot of other people thinking when Kenny when Comey first came out swinging against Trump after he was fired as FBI, you know, at the FBI, um his ability to sort of draw inform on background and sort of drive the news cycles against right. Trump and make Trump like kind of an idiot. That was this moment where everyone was like James Comey is super effective. And and Stormy right. Daniels is getting that that treatment now where it's sort of we talk about Stormy Daniels as somebody who is very effective at opposing Donald Trump. And the thing that's strange about it is Stormy Daniels' effectiveness is a media phenomenon. But importantly, it's not, at least not yet, 
it's not a political phenomenon. Right. Like, you understand doesn't, what I mean? Doesn't it feel doesn't feel like one, right? Right. Even though there are there are these there are campaign finance violation sort of implications as to what Stormy Daniels is saying about so basically um, her signing a non-disclosure agreement at one point to prohibit her from talking about Trump and her signing that non-disclosure agreement a month before the presidential election, right? This this has right. like a bunch of implications about whether the money paid out, whether it's from Michael Cohen or from Donald Trump, whether the money paid out is a violation of campaign finance law. That's right. sort of the closest we've got right now to a sense that like a terminal legal right. <laughs> failure on Trump's part. But otherwise, yeah, it seems like the effectiveness of Stormy Daniels is really just about the ability to generate headlines. And it's not actually about yeah. anything practical. What is going to be eternally funny to me is that nothing is really a good headline in the context of this president and this presidency. If Obama, not to be like, not, to be, be not to be my mom, but this is, look, this is exactly, this is exactly what she's talking about on the phone every time we talk. If Obama had, had stepped out with some, a porn star, in the context of his presidency, this would be a whole different kind of, you know, the salate, like the salaciousness would be even worse. Like the impact on the conversation publicly, culturally, we'd be having would be even wilder. And they would have found a way to impeach him somehow, frankly, right? It would have been a very smooth process. And just with this guy, it's just like, look, before he was elected, he was a fuckboy. So no matter how many receipts we come up with to that end, I, I don't know. Like, and let, like, give me, give me the Shondaland version of someone throwing the <laughs> book at him, and you know him getting hit by a bus at the end of the episode or something. Give me, like, give me, give me that. I, I don't, I don't need this. This is just, this is just teasing me with something that's not really going to come to anything. Well, that said, can we? I, we should talk about the expectations that people had going into the sixty minutes yes, interview. Can we? Because there was some we? interesting. So basically, I noted this at the top that Stormy Daniels spoke to In Touch in 2011 about the affair, and a few months ago, In Touch already released an extensive interview with Stormy Daniels, where she right. describes a lot of the affair and the sort of subsequent conversations over the years and, and relationships she had with Trump over the years. A lot of the details from that interview that a lot of us who are obsessed with this already read, a lot of those details are just things she revisits in the 60 right. Minutes interview. Right. So ultimately, the 60 Minutes interview, I would say, was not, as a piece of television, it wasn't as gratifying as I think that people hoped because people went And people in, pretended. And people pretended. You know, they live tweeted the shit out of it like right. it was TV. Sh like it was a TV show. But I think it's because people went in with this sense that there was a building hype and there was building innuendo coming from the Stormy Daniels camp that Stormy Daniels might have some even more tangible receipts. Right. There was a discussion of dick pics. Right. <laughs> potentially. Which remember that this affair happened in 2006 and I don't, you know, uh -huh. we, you have to keep in mind the phone technology involved mm, in a lot of this stuff. Thank you for that very practical <laughs> you're, no, this is a very practical like, <laughs> approach to, the, to this, to this, to this I've whatever this about is. It. It's a tech story too. Yeah, it's a, no, it, it, it is a tech story. Frankly, but, but continue, please. No, there is discussion of whether Stormy Daniels might have exceptionally vulgar evidence basically right of the affair with trump and she didn't uh, the 60 minutes interview did not yield that like there was clearly a demand for that to happen and at that point of people thinking that that's what they're going to see on 60 minutes which is the show all the old people are watching on Sunday right. night, 
I mean, it seems like they're going to see it, but let's let's not bury the lead. They want to see it. Right. Y'all want to see his dick so bad. Right. Which is why I've never met a country of people who wanted to see a dick as bad as we want to see his dick. Right. Or I'm saying we as in like my national affiliation to be clear. This is something that I actually do not want to see. Right. Um, The popular will we. The Rousseau we. (laughs) Right. Right. Just right. I would just like to be left out of that narrative. But it's the same with the P tape. And uh, 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 (laughs) you know, like I I don't know what to say. I mean, I I get why that would feel like a, a huge... Thing, but again, what is a dick pic going to prove except that they had an affair? Right. Which we already know they had. Because I believe Stormy Daniels. Look, I mean, account. right. I have right. no reason to doubt her account. Anybody who walks out of the woodwork and says they slept with Donald Trump, I'm like, yeah, you probably did. Because who would admit to that? Like, if it weren't true. <laughs> <laughs> so, but like, but like, why? I think we as a nation need to sit back and think about why we want to see his dick so bad. Like, like, is there a reason more pressing than just tangible confirmation, as you said, of this affair, which we actually don't need to prove? Right. I want to know about the accusations of violence. A dick pic is not going to tell me. Right. A dick pic is not going to tell me what his lawyer said to her. I get that we want to embarrass him. I think that speaking of this being a tech story, as a nation of people who do not have a grasp on our own privacy, I think that we should all be a little bit more careful about, like, wanting to leak people's dick pics, frankly, <laughs> to be honest with you. Because because once we open that door, like, listen, a lot of y'all are going to lose your jobs. So, so like, <laughs> you know, it's just like, why, why does this, why, again, why is this about the sex? Why is it about the sex? We didn't even get his tax returns at the end of that Rachel Maddow episode. Y'all think we're going to get his dick pic? Oh, man. Yeah, I have to bring it up. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just saying, please, please level your expectations. <laughs> I will say that, I will say that even, even the Watergate Hotel was not built in a day. And similarly, like, the Stormy Daniels affair is not the most fulfilling political scandal right now, but I would not count Stormy Daniels out. You're hearing Van Halen's Jump, which we are not playing arbitrarily, even though the movie Ready Player One uses it arbitrarily. We are here to talk about Spielberg's new movie, Ready Player One. Before we dive into this, I just want to say up top that there are going to be some spoilers, so cover your ears if you care that much, uh, because we're going to be talking about the plot quite a bit. I would like to start out just right up top with a little bit of violence. I would like to start with a headline. Please be warned, you may be caused to have a seizure or a violent fit from hearing this headline. I'm sorry, but we're here to talk you through it. Here's the headline. Will Ready Player One be Black Panther for gamers? (laughs) (laughs) I know. This is from a Heavy.com article written a couple of weeks ago about... 
Ready Player One, based on Ernest Klein's 2011 novel that I could not for the life of me get through, by the way. Uh, and the movie comes out this week. Charity, we saw it last night together. I'm pretty sure we both think the answer to that question in the headline is no, shut the hell up. Uh, no, my answer is the Lucille Bluth, I don't understand the question and I won't respond to it. <laughs> Precisely. But, but, but rather than just be trolled, um, which I think we're all, you know, I think we're all feeling a bit trolled by that headline. But rather than just be trolled, I want to take a kernel of truth or something there and reframe it little. Is Ready Player One Black Panther for gamers? No. But is Ready Player One Black Panther for the Gen X and boomer nostalgics who currently have a stranglehold over American pop culture? Yes. Oof. Obviously. Yeah. A thousand times yes. And this is charity. This is what I want to talk to you about. Tell me why Gen Xers and boomers right now and their childhoods are doing the Darth Vader chokehold, just trying to choke me out until I don't have a culture of my own anymore. Tell me tell me why they're trying to destroy <laughs> art for me, please. Well, Gen X, Gen X has always been the phantom menace, right? Ooh. They're always like, as much as you, you, as much as you might think of a young person going to see this movie and you think millennials, got it. These, this is a movie for millennials. This is a millennial movie. It's easy to forget that like, oh wait, yeah, the people with all the money and control are, are boomers and now Gen Xers at this point. Right. Um, and that's why things like this exist. That's why you have a futuristic movie that has a lot of modern gaming culture elements in it, but nonetheless is is very it is ransacked and shot through with the nineteen eighties. Right. Um right. And 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 led by Steven Spielberg. <laughs> we we should we should say, you know, we should talk about what the movie's about. It's a movie about a game designer played by Mark Rylance, who in the future becomes a designer of the most immersive sort of world of games. Everyone's involved. It's great. It's a thing called the Oasis, the Oasis where people live virtually. They can be anything that they want to be. They collect money. They put their down payments on their mortgages in there. And then when they die in this game world, they lose all their money. This does not sound attractive to me, but I'm just recounting the <laughs> plot of the movie. So Mark Rylance dies, but he leaves these keys behind in the game um, that when you get the mall will unlock the game and you become the owner of the Oasis, basically. And there's a whole corporation who's trying to get these keys. And then there are scrabbly, like, you know, people from middle America um, who are poor and destitute who are putting all their money into this to sort of win the keys as well. Um, and so... The thing is that this game designer kind of grew up in the 80s. So that's his cultural, that's his cultural, you know, touch point. And in order to kind of get through this game, to win the competition, to win control over the Oasis, you have to sort of do a lot of biographical research of this guy to figure out where he's planting these clues. So in sum, it is a movie and a book premised on an obsession, an obsession with like the cult of genius. Of this guy. Unabashedly so, but maybe not everyone would describe it that way because everyone, it's played by Mark Rylance. He seems like a really cool guy. He needs a better haircut. But other than that, he's like a very, like a a humble, kind of a, a nice tech CEO. Right. Um, a benevolent tech CEO, not the kind of guy who you'll like expect to be like, I'm running for mayor from San Francisco to kind of put more cops on the streets. No, he's more like Zuckerberg's weird, hilarious quest to become a real boy. <laughs> 
I think he's better than Zuckerberg, but sure. Yes. <laughs> so so this is so this is the premise. And in order to pull this off, you're just, you know, the Oasis is full of references. It's full of references to movies and not just stuff from the 80s, but you can't help but feel like it is all overwhelmingly playing up the childhood stuff, the same childhood stuff that Stranger Things plays in, that literally everything else that we've been calling nostalgic these days plays in. When we talk about nostalgic, we're not talking about nostalgia for Lion King even, or Little Mermaid even. We're talking about more purely the 80s and earlier. Is that fair? Yeah, it it definitely skews Gen X. Again, despite whatever pretensions of being a sort of hyper-millennial movie, it really skews. And, you know, part of that is... In the plot, it's rationalized by the fact that Halliday, who's, you know, the 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 late game designer, the beloved game designer right. Halliday, again, is, is specifically a child of the 80s. And everybody is really more than they're obsessed with modern gaming culture. They're obsessed with him. Right. And that includes <clears throat> millennials who are obsessed with him. And the fantasy of freedom that comes with this. We should say, right. like, one of this guy's big things is he doesn't want to put too many rules on the world of the Oasis. Right. Um, he wants it to be sort of this utopic, virtual world. And it's a great idea. It's kind of a beautiful idea. And Spielberg sort of represents it very nicely, I think. Um, But I am over nostalgia. Well, are you over nostalgia in general or are you... Because this movie's version of nostalgia is, is... This movie, I should say, like, we're talking about how it's a blend of different references and things like that, but I, it's an overload. And it's by design, but it's very much supposed to be the the Vegas buffet <laughs> right. of gaming culture references. Well, the, yes. Yes. The climax of the movie is literally a full-blown, like, mashup of every single video game character you've ever, ever seen in your life converging... Right. In like a Braveheart rush, right <laughs> to plus, the end of the movie. Plus movie characters and other things. It's like it's like for me, what what is interesting about this is the extent to which this is a you know a project about saying that gaming culture is as fundamental to our kind of monoculture as movies are, so that you can have these video game references like Overwatch, etc., and Halo next to King Kong and Chucky. Um, Jurassic Park, Godzilla, all these things. Um, it's like it's like saying like gaming. You are a part of the culture too. This is I think what people are are not particularly eloquently yeah. or elegantly gesturing at when they say you know is this like Black Panther for gamers? It, it's it's a sort of like a it is it's true. It's like a there's a cultural canon, and now we're saying that gaming. And all those references are a part of it. Now we're saying the logic of knowing all the secret codes and all these things is as essential to culture as everyone seeing King Kong and knowing what that is. Yeah, you're right. It's like that integration is such a part. I mean, again, the first big set piece, there's this this race with countless competitors all driving cars on this super advanced track modeled after Manhattan. right? Right. And yeah, the star of that set piece is King Kong. Right. And like... Donkey Kong's a character, but that's not the character they chose. They yeah. chose King Kong. And like that that's sort of the thing that that's sort of your tell that like Spielberg isn't just like there there is something about how people talk about this movie as if it is it is purely 
game pandering. And I right. think that's why your angle on it is like being annoyed at Gen Xers is so much more interesting. Because yeah. I think otherwise, the way people read Ready Player One, but the source material in the movie is that it really just exists to pander to reactionary gamers. But it's actually pandering to a more, to a broader, I think deeper sort of reactionary sensibility yes. that is applicable to way more stretches of American culture than people want to let on. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Because I'm, you know, currently you know, writing about this movie. My piece will be up tomorrow. I am trying to wrap my mind around, particularly people writing online when, when, they, when they're doing this sort of like, I feel seen by Ready Player One. It's interesting to me because I'm not part of the gaming world. So I'm biased toward whatever sort of leaks into the mainstream. But um, <laughs> I'm rolling up my sleeves right now. <laughs> um, you know, I know what Gamergate is. I, I, I know and I understand the extent to which sort of, you know, nerd culture or whatever you want to call it, the, the problems of like the reactions to, for example, the Ghostbusters remake, things like that, fell on the shoulders of nerd culture. And so I'm sensitive to this idea that there's a, I mean, well, first of all, I mean, nerd culture did sort of fuck that one up and y'all weren't, <laughs> y'all were really acting out of turn about just like an all lady Ghostbusters. To be clear, I think you were in the wrong with that one. But but what I'm saying is like, there's an ease with which um, we keep repeating this sort of need for a revenge of the nerds scenario. But I, I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to help me. I'm just, I'm just trying to understand why nerd culture feels so embattled that we'd even be in a situation to be saying that nerd culture needs a Black Panther. Yeah, and I, I don't want to paint with a super broad brush because there, there are definitely progressive and yes, leftist absolutely. elements of, of nerd culture. And yes. I don't want to just cede that to the more reactionary factions. But there is a sense in which the logic of the type of nerd fandom you're talking about is exactly the logic and language of certain types of conservatism in America, right? right? It's this permanent, aggrieved, embattled posture from people who are clearly the people with all the power. Right. It's the people who are dominant, pretending that they are the most downtrodden people on earth. Right. Right. And that's what you get with the sort of person, I think, who um, is <laughs> susceptible to joining the ranks of gamer gay or, or is the sort of person who feels seen by Ernest Klein's original novel, right? And it's sort of, it's, it's America is just... Uh, it's popular culture is in such a strange moment where, again, it's all of this art, all of this comic book culture, all of this nerd culture that, you know, I think at a different time maybe was more legitimately marginal. It's just so obviously not marginal now. Right. Like the even if you're going to invoke Black Panther in that, it's like, yeah, that's another thing where it's like you're talking about. Like, it's not gaming, but Black Panther itself is nerd culture. You know what right. I mean? It's, right. it's not like Black Panther is unre otherwise unrelated to Ready Player One. Like, it's all, cla I mean, again, a lot of, I think hip-hop is nerd culture in a way. But if we're talking totally. about, like, classical nerd culture as classically understood by people, um, yeah, I, there's something, there's something totally loaded about gamer as an identity. Yeah, it and, feels like that as someone who's outside of the identity. And I'll now give you the counterpoint to that, which is like, I am a person who plays video games. I'm a person who has written about video games for TheRinger.com. I have a lot of thoughts about video games. I specifically have a lot of thoughts about Halliday, the game designer in this movie, and I'm going to write about him at some point um, for the site. But it's a, that identity, gamer, is so loaded, and it's so 
it, it skews so much toward the reactionary actions that I would never and have never in my life described myself as a gamer. <laughs> yeah, I mean? right, right. Like I can watch Ready Player One and there's some, I mean, I watched it with you, Cam, and there's one moment toward the end of the movie where I felt seen. <laughs> you sure did. I, I sensed it. I sensed it happening right next to me. <laughs> it was unfortunate. It was wild. Although I will say it was a moment that had nothing to do with video games. Sure. Because it had to do with Godzilla. Yes. Ah, uh-huh. I had to do it. Yeah, sure. Here's the th- I, here's the thing for me. This this sort of uh, this is all just inherently unsatisfying to me. Uh, you know, a movie that is entirely comprised or almost entirely comprised of references to things that I already care about has little value to me beyond its ability to curate things that it knows that I care about because they're the same things that appear on every best of the 80s playlist. They're the same things that always come up in the sort of like, do you remember X? Yes, we remember X. This thing got 15K retweets because we all remember X. (laughs) But you're going to put it in this movie. We're going to act like seeing this kid drive a DeLorean is somehow like a what? Like what? Like, yeah, you know, it's it's like from from things like that onward. I'm just like, you know what? Fuck it. (laughs) Like I'm just not I'm just I'm just I'm just I'm not into it in part because too much of this is defining commerce right now for me and pop culture right now too many throwbacks too much milking of the feeling that you get when a thing that you cared about when you were younger sort of re-arrives on the mainstream a thing that you felt was maybe beyond the mainstream at first uh, a nerdy side thing like back to the future kind of frankly but it's like Everybody knows who Marty McFly is. You know, I, I, I don't know. Like, who but do you cares? Think that that, but do you think that that's all Spielberg is doing with this movie? I think the movie no, is No, I think he's smarter. doing other things. I think he's doing other things, but I think it's two and a half hours of that, no matter what else no, he accomplishes. Sure. Yeah. And just like Stranger Things has been two seasons of that, no matter other things it accomplishes. And so I'm sitting through hours and hours of things that people who are older than me care about more than I do that I maybe would care about more. Although I think if I were Gen X, I would also be tired of me. Gen X is self-obsessed to never be tired. Of is it not? Is it like, like, is it, is it not? Frankly, um, you know, I, I don't know. Like, when do we forget the eighties such that we have to keep never forgetting the eighties hashtag never forget, never forget what Van Halen. <laughs> like, 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 but, but to your point about just like the weirdness of these references, the fact that the movie starts with a song like Van Halen's jump, this is not happening in the movie. This is not a thing you can directly attribute to Halliday or the kinds of clues that you need to sort of solve the puzzle of winning this game. This is just the movie starting off with this song. Doesn't that sort of tell you that it is just about easy references, that it's not really about what it means necessarily to the characters? Why would a 20-year-old in 2047 care as much about The Breakfast Club as Mark Rylance's dead character cared? I don't care about Casablanca as much as my grandma does. It's a great movie, but but it's like not like it's not the same kind of touchstone. I mean, you're saying it like it's. I mean, but that's the thing. It's it like on its face, it's kind of preposterous until you think about how culture is structured now, and it's like, oh, I guess I can't imagine a 2040 whatever where like no in 2040 we're on our fifth rehash of the 80s. In 2040, they're going to be. I mean, it's if it's 2018 now, and Back to the Future came out in the 80s. Then in 2047, if we kind of keep on the same tempo of this, they're going to be obsessed with things that haven't come out yet. Yeah, except for the things that are going to come out in the period that will be covered by that are just going to be tributes to things from the— You see what I'm saying? So, it's a feedback so loop. It's so a paradox. Ooh. 
it's no what the it is is a paradox. trash heap. <laughs> <laughs> what it is is a rabbit hole of bullshit. But I but I want to say that as much as so I, you put it well when you say that no matter what ideas Spielberg is working with, the point is it's a two and a half hour movie, and that sort of barrage of references and pandering, it's so enmeshed in the movie itself that it you have to take that even if there's something you have else to take there. That. Uh, in the smartest moments of the movie, I like to think that Spielberg is playing with the idea that thinking of culture that way is dumb. Early in the movie, there's a scene at the racetrack that I described, and the female lead in the character, Artemis, you first see her and she's riding Kanada's bike from Akira. Right. And Parcival's way of observing her is, that's Kanada's bike from Akira. <laughs> you right. know what I mean? He does right. that. And it's... Sometimes, like, there are a lot of scenes like that in the movie, and they always sound so stupid at face value. Like, the delivery sounds so—it sounds earnest in a way that I'm always thinking, is this inviting my ridicule? And even the way that Artemis sort of initially treats Parsifal in the movie, it's sort of like she—she's—it feels like she's in on the joke of the idea that— Thinking of culture this way is easy. Until she starts to quiz him yeah. on Halliday's like favorite breakfast club right. quote or whatever the fuck. But that's Until the thing. she reveals that she too is a part of the bullshit. That, right. There's a weird alternation. There's a weird schizophrenic alternation where it's like sometimes the movie feels like it's on the side of gamers and sometimes it feels like Spielberg is not on the side of gamers. And there's a great – there's one great scene in the movie I think when Parseval is confronting – uh, my man, Ben Mendelsohn, the main, he's great. He's great. Oh, he's, con- you know, they're having this Best weird confrontation. And it's at, at a point in the movie where Mendelssohn's really trying to convert Percival. And he has these people in his ear at his corporation who are whispering all these references that he knows that Percival would just totally get off to. You know, he's talking about the breakfast club and he says all of this shit. And Parseval recognizes that he's just being pandered to. Right. But that doesn't change the upshot of the scene, which is that Mendelssohn's character has just laid it out on the table, the idea that, look, if you just think, if you just let yourself be a sucker for a bunch of of corporate figures sort of selling your own taste back to you and regurgitating things you already like at you, like, you're just going to fall for bullshit. Yes. And it's moments like that that make me think, uh, this movie is smarter than the person who will like this movie. Well, that or the villain is smarter than the movie. (laughs) (laughs) Could this be another American blockbuster in which the villain is right? No, he's not right because he's the corporate stooge. But of course, like the character who says that is the corporate stooge. So you, you, it's, it comes with a sense it's poison. of poison. Like, it's a poison pill. Yeah, yeah and yeah. it's like, yeah, but his cynicism is like the fact that he knows to use that for monetary gain is like it is the essence of the movie. Yeah. The movie as in a product that we saw in a theater that knows that people are going to see it because, first of all, going to see – a popcorn movie with Steven Spielberg or a Steven Spielberg movie that makes a lot of money is in itself nostalgic because that is not something that's really happening in the 21st century. That this phase of Steven Spielberg's career was the 80s and the 90s, was the Jurassic Parks and the Jaws and the Indiana Jones. It wasn't the BFG era, the Lincoln era, the Adventures of Tintin era, the Munich era, right? <laughs> the post era. Uh, the, the Tintin era we right. all know and love. <laughs> right. It was, right. It's like, it's like, it's, it's nostalgic in a lot of ways. And you know what? Spielberg can do whatever he wants. He can go on Twitter and do a cease and desist over a hamburger. He can literally do whatever he wants. But I just think the rest of us have got to like 
at least for my sake, display more fatigue with this so that I can trust that we have not lost all of our minds. Um, like, like be more wary over all the references over stranger in Stranger Things and in this and et cetera, et cetera. Just be a little bit more wary. Just tweet about it more so that I at least can feel <laughs> like like we are all a little bit more cynical than this because I'm tired. I'm really, I'm really tired of this 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 magic school bus tour of Gen Xers childhoods that I've been on for a decade. I'm over y'all. <laughs> like, <laughs> please with the frozen references. Give me something yeah, new. Yeah, yeah. Give us the yeah. Logan Paul frozen. Right. We, were talking, we were talking last give night. Give me <laughs> Wally. Give, give, you know, at least it's still cynical bullshit, but just update it a little bit, please. Oh my god. <laughs> All right, that wraps us up. I'm Justin Charity. I'm Cameron Collins, and this is my last episode of Damage Control, at least as a host. Oh, man. Uh, Yes, so I am taking a job at Vanity Fair. Sad to be leaving the ringer behind. Sad especially to be leaving this podcast behind. I remember this episode of Do You Like Prince Movies? (laughs) 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 Which I still follow on my podcast app, even though there are no new episodes. Hopefully you guys know what to do without at least this iteration of damage control. Hopefully you know how to digest the internet and make sense of culture and be mad in a healthy and reasonable way. And to not do it in Twitter threads and to just take a lap. (laughs) Uh, You know, maybe rent Ready Player One. Don't give it your $17, et cetera, et cetera. You know, 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 just my general life advice. Live responsibly. Live responsibly. This has been very nice. This has been very fun. Developing this podcast, being on it. I've had a very good time. Fans of Damage Control should know that this is just kind of like how Cam and I operate in the real world. So off mic, these conversations continue. (laughs) So you'll just have to wait for the NSA, the FBI to leak the inevitable tapes that they have. Yeah, you'll just Um, have to imagine the fire. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this has been great. Thanks, Cam. We're going to miss you. 